Welcome back to the 24-7 Muscle Podcast with your host Frida. Let me start with the recurring disclaimer that this podcast is independent of my current research and teaching roles at Maastricht University and I'm doing this on my own initiative. In today's episode we will talk all things around shift work and its health consequences. And I'm very happy that I got one of the leading researchers on this topic, which is Frank Scher, who is a professor at the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders in the Departments of Medicine and Neurology of Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. The goal of this two-part series is to give you a good overview about shift work and its different forms, what side effects on his or her health can shift workers expect acutely and in the long term, what pathologies are associated with shift work, and after this general discussion on shift work, we will dive into two recent studies performed by Frank Scher's group, which focus on the question of when a shift worker might want to eat to lower the health burden. All these things will be covered in the first part of this two-part series. In the second part, we will we will move to the practical the translation side of things and talk about straightforward recommendations for what a night shift worker could do acutely preceding, during, and following a shift and chronically when working years of shift schedules to minimize health risks. And now without further delay, we will jump right into the first part of this episode series with Frank Scher. Then I welcome Frank or Frank Scher to the 24-7 Muscle Podcast. It's an honor to have you, Frank. And um, I would like to start by asking you what your personal background is of getting into the research topic of circadian rhythms and uh, shift work and also just, I mean, just go for the entire story of, as I know, you you came from the Netherlands to the US and so on. So I think that's really valuable to hear for listeners. Yeah, thanks, Frida, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so yeah, my background, I, I studied biology in, in Utrecht uh, University. Uh, then I went on to do my PhD work at the Netherlands Institute for Brain Research in Amsterdam where I worked with uh, Ruud Buys, who, who subsequently then moved uh, and is currently in, in Mexico uh, running his lab. And so towards the end of my PhD work, I reached out to a number of labs around the world that were uh, top labs regarding uh, circadian research, especially human circadian research. And I was lucky enough to be approached then by the lab where uh, I am now, which is at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Well, I was lucky enough not only to be approached, but then also to be accepted there. And I did a dual postdoc, meaning a postdoc in two separate labs simultaneously. So one lab uh, uh, was run by Stephen Shea, who had a very strong background in uh, breathing regulation, especially combine this with circadian biology, so more a clinical focus. Uh, and the other part I did was Charles Seisler, uh, who is uh, well known uh, internationally by many, uh, who was looking more at fundamental properties of the human circadian timing system. So that combines uh, 
background uh, gave me a, a good start and uh, things worked out well the the people are wonderful the <clears throat> facilities uh, are are also wonderful and um, things worked out and I, I stayed and I climbed up the ladder and so currently I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and uh, the director of the medical chronobiology program that Steve, Stephen Shea and I actually co-founded uh, in 2015. What, what drew me to circadian rhythms, uh, I think this really, well, I know this started really when I started at the Nellis Institute for Brain Research, where I, for my second master's project, I interviewed with a number of uh, the investigators there at the Brain Institute. And I was intrigued by the story that Ruud Buys told me, which was that this tiny, tiny nucleus, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the master clock, uh, would be involved in so many aspects of regulation of physiology and behavior. And so just that intrigued me so much, um, as well as the potential health and, and disease implications that this may have. And so this was actually the start of me falling in love with the uh, circadian uh, research. Yeah, and I I've, I fully understand that. I can <laughs> very much um, feel uh, the passion there. And uh, for, for me, it was quite similar. And I elaborated on that a little bit in the beginning of the podcast episodes. So it's good to hear that that was um, also the case for you. So today we will talk about shift work. And for me, it is really important that we set a good stage for listeners of understanding, because um, I think different people will have different backgrounds or different experiences themselves with shift work and either know how hard it is and how disruptive it can be, or have no idea at all. And um, then I would also like to to talk about what a shift worker can, can do during the shift, preceding the shift, and so on. But before all that, I would really like to ask you, Frank, to set the stage by giving us a definition of shift work and maybe what different forms of shift work exist. Right. Excellent question. Uh, the short answer is there is no single definition of shift work. <laughs> And you may notice that if you look into the literature that uh, at original papers that do analysis on this, that definitions uh, differ depending on uh, the occupations, on the countries, on the labs that work on this type of research. And uh, that's probably in part because it's uh, highly varied what shift, what kind of shifts people may be engaged in. But having said that, there, uh, the the kind of broader definition is that it's what people call atypical uh, work schedules, uh, meaning deviate. So the broadest definition of shift shift work would be anything that deviates from kind of your typical nine to five uh, office hours. And of course, with that definition, shift work is highly highly prevalent. Uh, certainly in in recent years, certainly I would say with the pandemic that many people have uh, gained more flexibility in their work schedules. And so, but having said that, I think that's not typically as strict as people, people typically think about it in more stricter terms. And you can subdivide it in three main categories. So you have permanent night work where people, when they work, they work uh, during nights. And what this means, uh, again, differs a bit, uh, but typically means that people work at least overlapping 
several hours during the normal hours where people might be otherwise sleeping. Uh, the, the second one that's also quite prevalent is rotating shifts. And this means that people don't have the, the same shift each day they work, but they rotate. And so they may rotate uh, from day shifts to evening shifts to night shifts to morning shifts. And so that is quite common. Uh, the direction of shift may differ. Some people may shift forwards or backwards, meaning moving later or, or earlier. And then the third one, which is kind of, you can think about as being the rest, which is irregular schedules. So people may not follow a, a strict rotation. They may not follow permanent night work. And so they may be engaged uh, in very irregular schedules because of the job requirements, because it's more about when are they needed as opposed to, you know, when it's good for their personal life. Maybe already to kind of jump to one aspect that is relevant uh, to the discussion today is that one may think, oh, well, maybe permanent night workers, they're, they're fine because they can adapt to working at night. The unfortunate answer to if that if you make that into a question is that they do not adapt to permanent night work uh, meaning that their internal body clock the circadian system doesn't entrain doesn't synchronize to this inverted uh, sleep-wake cycle and the reason for that may be twofold or at least twofold one is that many night workers permanent night workers when they commute back home in the morning they're exposing themselves to natural light. Uh, even on a rainy day, uh, if you are outside, this can be in the order of uh, 10,000 lux or so. So, you know, people are still going to be exposed uh, to, to daylight to some degree. And so this will, because light is the most important side giver or time cue that you may have discussed uh, in previous episodes, mm -hmm. this will prevent their clock from moving later. Uh, the second part is that during time off, during their free days, most night workers or any shift workers will revert back to a schedule where they are sleeping at night so that they can be with friends and family uh, during daytime hours. And so <clears throat> even if they do shift to some degree, then uh, this shift will be prevented or uh, you know, minimized because of what they do on their free days. This is what you see in most uh, night workers. There are some exceptions. Uh, so if there's work done in oil rig workers or mm -hmm. people working working in Arctic stations where they're in very confined environments where all their colleagues that they're working with are on those same uh, schedules. And indeed, those in those populations, when they're doing permanent night work, they're truly doing permanent night work. They're not flipping back on the free days. They don't have commutes because they're uh, working and, and living in the same location. And so there, what we see, uh, or what other investigators have shown, is that their internal body clock does fully adapt to their night work. Yeah, that's, that's I think, a really good perspective. And I also remember similar data, I think, in, in workers on submarines, where you can also control the environment pretty well. And I think people are working something four to eight hour shifts and then have four to eight hour sleeping opportunities and so on and there uh, they actually in some studies i think see positive effects on metabolic outcomes for people compared to their regular lifestyle so i think that's that's also interesting to note uh, but your distinction between um having shift workers that work morning shifts 
afternoon shifts, night shifts, and so on. I think that is that is really interesting on the one hand, and we need to kind of separate that from from what I'm gonna discuss from now on. More is the typical only night shift worker because I think it's it's good to isolate one type of shift worker. Uh, in this example, just to give listeners an overview of what can happen, and you already gave a little bit of an example of this, that people uh, leave uh, their work in the morning and are then exposed to natural light. So let's maybe give a picture of a night shift worker, just the entire period of the night shift or the entire day prior to the night shift and then the next day. So if we take a, a nurse, a typical nurse in the hospital, I think at least from, from some of my friends that I know that are nurses and that they told me about their, their schedule, that if they have a like real night shift, that they start working at 9 p.m. So that means that on that day, they tend to probably sleep in to uh, anticipate a little bit that uh, they have to work late and that they of course, don't uh, wake up uh, as they would maybe usually do at six or seven, uh, but they sleep in. So let's say at like at least 10 a.m., maybe even up to 12 p.m. And uh, then uh, they go to work at 9 p.m. It's probably dark outside, at least in, in most countries, uh, of course, depending on the season, but it's probably dark uh, most of the time. And they enter the hospital. The hospital is usually a very bright place uh, of LED lighting. Uh, so you have already artificial light instead of natural light during a time of day where you would usually be exposed to darkness or maybe at home to at least dimmer light, hopefully. And next to that, people are, instead of preparing for bed, uh, they are actually quite active, walking around, climbing stairs, maybe sitting also, of course, a little bit. But uh, in contrast to when they are entering their beds where they would be horizontally lying in bed, which would mean they, their blood pressure drops quite considerably, their blood pressure instead during the night shift stays high because they need to stay alert during work. And then next to that, they also, of course, usually consume calories. They consume coffee to stay awake instead of um, staying the night period fasted or entering at least to some degree fasting metabolism and um, yeah, exposing their circulation to, to the insulin response of, of bread meals, uh, sugar meals, and so on. And then what you mentioned, so that kind of continues throughout the night shift, and then next morning at 6 a.m., they are maybe done with work usually, and they are leaving the hospital, possibly, again, depending on the season, with sunrise and are exposed to natural light and to uh, color information of their environment that would signal their body, oh, it's the start of a new day, and um, accordingly, physiology would adapt to that. So you can imagine, I think, uh, you as listeners now, uh, that this is quite disruptive in total for your physiology, for your metabolism, and um, not being able to switch to fasting fully. Is there anything that you would add to that, Frank? I, I wanted to ask what you meant with adapt to that. So you, when you say adapt, yeah, do, do are you referring to the circadian system or are you referring to something else? 
No, you're right. So what I meant was that uh, so adapt to the to the sunrise response, for example. So adapt is maybe not the right term. Just the response to that would, of course, be more of an awakening response. And uh, typically that would also uh, be paralleled by by cortisol release and so on. So all kinds of processes that you don't want at that time of the day or you usually want that at that time of the day, but you don't want it for a night shift worker that then wants to fall asleep as soon as possible. I see, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so you're saying a lot of the exposures and the behaviors are not conducive of then subsequently falling asleep during the daytime hours, right? Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that later, I think, uh, about you know how people can uh, try to optimize uh, their ability to to cope. Uh, with, with this inverted uh, schedule. So yeah, I think, um, yeah, you touched on all the important parts. Uh, I think so. What you see, it's not just inversion of one's sleep-wake cycle, but also of one's eating fasting cycle, one's physical activity, uh, posture you mentioned, and of course, light uh, Light at night itself is an important topic of, of research, uh, which in many occupations, people have a lot of uh, during the night shift. I think, uh, and, and all of those factors may impact body clocks throughout, you know, not just our central clock, but also throughout the rest of our body. I think other aspects that are kind of beyond the circadian and sleep realm would be thinking about uh, the access that people have. For example, access to healthy food uh, if canteens uh, or yeah. restaurants are are not open and they may be limited to uh, raiding the, the vending machine uh, or maybe access to gyms, right? So maybe they, they don't have the same type of uh, ability there. I think also social aspects there uh, may be of importance. There is uh, work, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well, but there's work showing that uh, the risk for depression, for example, uh, may be elevated among night workers. And so the social aspect uh, contact with friends and family is quite different if you're not aligned with their schedules. And so, uh, yeah, the, the whole complexity of night work that touches touches on so many aspects of life and biology makes it into an important question, especially because so many people are engaged in it, and especially, as we'll discuss next, the uh, the potential health consequences of it. Yeah. No, great. Okay. I think then I hope we painted a convincing contrasting picture for listeners between night shift and your your regular uh, day work. And with that, indeed, we can move to the question, what kind of side effects of such a shift work scenario that we just painted of that nurse, would we expect to happen on the acute perspective but also in the long term and i and i mean you already mentioned things like like depression i guess that's that's one of the long-term side effects but what kind of things can we expect on maybe the cardiometabolic level right so yeah let's let's think first about kind of the more short-term effects and i think many people can relate to that um if you've ever experienced jet lag because those are kind of the short-term consequences you can uh, many of which you can experience, not all of which you actually experience in the sense that, uh, for example, increased sleepiness, you will notice consciously uh, your struggle to sleep 
when your circadian system is not aligned with your your sleep timing, we can notice that that we're struggling and experience insomnia. Other commonly reported acute effects include uh, GI uh, problems, so gastrointestinal issues, uh, cramping, bloating, feeling nauseated, and uh, related aspects. And then I think also mood aspects, which may or may not go hand in hand with fatigue and sleepiness related uh, measures. So cardiometabolic on the short term, most people, again, don't are not aware of it because they don't have a readout that they are uh, that reaches their consciousness. But uh, and we can talk about this maybe a bit later as well. But in our uh, in-laboratory controlled studies, we've looked at the acute uh, effects of circadian misalignment in an experimental way where people are their own controls. And so what we then can see is that uh, we see increases in blood pressure, for example, across the 24 hours. Uh, we see a decrease in the blood pressure dipping meaning that the normal decrease in blood pressure during the sleep episode is not as pronounced. And, and blood pressure dipping has been reported to be an independent risk factor for uh, long-term cardiovascular disease, separate from your mean uh, blood pressure. And then really large effects we have observed with glucose control, uh, as well as immune-related factors, so increases in, in uh, inflammatory markers, uh, for example. Changes in gut microbiota we've recently published on uh, mood, decreased mood, uh, meaning increases in uh, depressive and anxiety-related mood. So there are a lot of changes that occur acutely, but many of them we're not aware of. Now, the long-term effects, uh, in a way, very much line up with that, except that people become aware of it because they may see a physician or they may develop a disease that impairs their their health and their their quality of life. And so in the way that they relate to it, one one sees is increased risk for diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, increased risk for uh, developing obesity increased risk for cardiovascular disease, hypertension. We've recently shown increased risk for asthma, uh, increased risk, as mentioned before, uh, in depression. So a lot of these uh, short-term changes that we can see under highly controlled laboratory conditions line up with what's shown in epidemiological studies in in the long term for chronic disease. I think that in terms of acute but also long-term effect, yeah, many associated um, negative effects of shift work go are pretty much the same as you would expect for sleep restriction, sleep loss, and so just independent of shift work. Um, is there, and that's also a question that I actually often ask my students to to think about, is there a way experimentally that we can, or do you know based on on some other studies, that we can somehow disentangle the consequences of, on the one hand, shift work induced uh, circadian misalignment versus uh, the shift work induced sleep impairment, because we know from just messing with sleep what, what it does on, on, for example, cardiometabolic risk factors. So, a couple of thoughts there to come that may be worth uh, touching on. 
Uh, I guess one quick comment is that a lot of the uh, sleep restriction type studies that have been performed may actually include a circadian disruption element as well. Yeah. In the sense that a lot of the uh, sleep restriction studies may expose people to light uh, for longer, and they actually restrict the dark episode uh, simultaneously with restricting the sleep episode. The other aspect is that in many of these sleep restriction studies, uh, people may provide the research participants with additional food to eat late mm -hmm. in the evening hours. So just as a side note, that it, uh, that it may also be the other way around. It may be that some of the uh, observations with sleep restriction That's uh, true, may yeah. in part <laughs> be due to circadian uh, disruption. Uh, having said that point, the other aspect to, or the, the other point to make is that it is true that in uh, night workers, their their sleep is typically shortened and sometimes disrupted, uh, meaning, you know, not, not as high of quality, uh, either fragmented or maybe less of deep sleep. There, there are two kind of factors that may play a role there. One is the fact that we know that sleep itself is regulated by the circadian system. So the two process model of sleep that was introduced by Alex Borbay recognizes that the uh, amount of sleep you can obtain depends on not a, not only your homeostatic sleep pressure, meaning the longer you've stayed awake, the higher your sleep pressure becomes, that's homeostatically regulated, but also by the circadian phase at which you attempt to sleep. And because of that, when a night worker tries to sleep during the day when we know the circadian system doesn't support sleep, especially not later in the day, uh, the consequence can be that the sleep is, uh, is impaired. The second reason that sleep may be impaired in night workers is because it may be more challenging in their environment to sleep uh, because there may be more background noise. There may be interruptions by family members or uh, pets uh, or traffic outdoors or light exposure if they may not have good blackout shades in their their rooms. So I think it's good to think about why sleep might be impaired in, in those people. So then to come to your question uh, about how can we disentangle whether it's actually sleep that's disrupted or uh, circadian disruption that causes the, these adverse effects. One approach we have used, which is kind of an indirect approach, is to actually measure sleep in our participants and then statistically uh, test if the sleep quality that the people get, if that's a factor that can explain our changes in the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so in doing so, we found that it cannot explain uh, these effects, and so that the effects of circadian misalignment are above and beyond uh, any effects sleep has. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an indirect uh, way, but uh, one can also test this more directly experimentally. And this is uh, work that's been done in F. and Couter's lab in Chicago, where what they did is they had people not only misalign their sleep, but also restrict their sleep opportunity. So what they did is they restricted the sleep opportunity to five hours per day, per 24 hours, and then either 
maintained alignment, uh, so kept sleep occurring during the night, or moved it to different times of the day over, I think it was five days or so. Mm -hmm. And so what they were able to do in that setup is to keep the amount of sleep that the participants got very similar between both groups. Because when you restrict sleep to five hours, you're going to use it all, whether you're aligned or misaligned. And so by doing that, they could keep the amount of sleep that the people got the same and show that the misalignment of the circadian system had an added effect and by itself caused, in this case, glucose control to be impaired. So the, the, the conclusion from those kind of approaches is that circadian misalignment has effects that are above and beyond uh, any effects that sleep has. Okay, great. Yeah, I was not aware of that uh, paper from Ethan Calder. I will look that up. Sounds very interesting. No, I think that was uh, brilliantly done here as for setting the stage of what we're going to discuss with the more practical perspective. So when we move to that perspective, I would like to first touch upon studies from your lab that have recently been published because I think they provide us with some rationale to go for a certain practical recommendations or at least to avoid certain things that we uh, that shift workers are uh, keen to do. So if we start with the with the little bit older one, I mean, they are both pretty recent still. So I will read out the title for listeners to, to follow better here. So it was published in Science Advances in 2021. It's called Daytime Eating Prevents Internal Circadian Misalignment and Glucose Intolerance in Night Work. Can you, because I remember it's quite a complex study design, can you highlight the most important take-home messages from that study for a shift worker with yeah, practical things in mind? Yeah, it's indeed a, a quite a complex study design. Even for chronobiologists, it is, this <laughs> <Yeah>. is <laughs> complicated in the sense that we make use of two gold standard circadian protocols and we mix them in a way that hadn't been done before. So the goal was to address two primary questions. One was that in, and I'll just sketch a little bit of the background uh, to indicate what the knowledge gap was that we were trying to address. So one uh, aspect of circadian misalignment that we touched upon is that, and, and let me define circadian misalignment here. So circadian misalignment here, what I mean was that is the mistiming of our behavioral cycle relative to the internal uh, central body clock uh, as regulated by a nucleus in the hypothalamus in the brain that's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's called suprachiasmatic because it's on top of the optic chiasm from which it receives uh, critical light information to keep it synchronized to the solar day, so the day-night cycle. And so we can, and circadian misalignment is relevant for, we spoke about shift work, it's also relevant for if you have transatlantic uh, flight or other uh, flight across time zones, because what it requires is your, uh, eventually your circadian system to kind of catch up with the new, uh, the new time zone. And then thirdly, it applies to many people who have circadian rhythm sleep disorders. And then fourthly, it it is relevant to basically all of us in the sense that many of us uh, change the time of when we 
even go to bed uh, on a on a day-by-day basis. Typically, people move later in the weekends compared to the weekdays. And so this is a, a concept that, that's referred to as social jet lag because it's the social requirements of school and, and jobs that requires us to uh, revert back on on the terrible Monday mornings when we have to crawl mm-hmm. out of bed and uh, try to act uh, normal again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so just to make the point that this is highly relevant to many of us. So that was the the reason for us to focus on the consequences of this. So what we did, and just to make the point that the epidemiological studies that had shown increased risk in in shift workers have tried to adjust for factors such as differences in socioeconomic status between night workers and day workers, between lifestyles and workload and what have you. And what they found basically is they couldn't explain the increased risk uh, fully, which begs the question then, what is the driving force uh, behind uh, the adverse effects of Uh, shift work. So what we did is we simulated circadian misalignment in the lab. Uh, One benefit is that we can take out of the equation all these other factors. So socioeconomic status, because it's within subject design, uh, lifestyle, same thing, Uh, workload, we can uh, make sure that the the behavioral day looks identical, aligned and misaligned. Yeah, so basically we can con- control all the aspects that otherwise would be confounders. And so what we previously found, focusing more on the metabolic aspect, is that, uh, and this was worked by Chris Morris, who, who was a postdoc in my lab, uh, where we this work was published in, uh, in 2015 in uh, PNAS, we looked at uh, glucose control uh, specifically and found that when misalignment when misaligned the glucose tolerance uh, was decreased and glucose tolerance is a measure that uh, indicates how well the body is able to move uh, blood sugar into the tissues so when glucose tolerance is impaired it means that you're Blood sugar levels will stay elevated longer and will rise higher. Uh, just to say that this was a follow-up to a study we published in 2009 in PNAS. Uh, this was worked together with Stephen Shea, uh, my former mentor and uh, long-term colleague and friend. In in that original study in 2009 in PNAS, we also showed impairment of glucose tolerance as well as increases in blood pressure and decreases in the satiety hormone leptin, suggesting that this may be a mechanism that could help explain increased risk for diabetes, increased risk for cardiovascular disease, and increased risk for obesity. And we we had also, and this again was work with Chris Morris, we had shown that these effects are even observed in chronic shift workers. Because one could say, oh, well, maybe chronic shift workers are a selected group of people uh, who've learned to cope with this uh, somehow and are not impacted negatively by circadian misalignment. Unfortunately, we found that that's not the case. These people also show decreases in glucose tolerance, increases in blood pressure, increases in inflammatory markers. So with that 
background of the adverse effects of circadian misalignment on cardiometabolic risk factors, we were thinking about what can we do about it? Shift work is not going to go away anytime soon. So can we think about factors, changes that we could implement that could minimize uh, the adverse effects? And so we were looking at the work in the animal experimental arena, uh, especially, for example, work by Carolina Escobar, who had simulated night work in rodent uh, model. And she did this by putting them in these slow rotating drums. So it doesn't force them to exercise, it just prevents them to sleep when the <laughs> drum is moving. You know, and, and that way it simulates a bit of the inability of a shift worker to sleep at night. And she, she found negative uh, metabolic effects that then she could prevent by scheduling the animals to only eat during the normal time that they would be eating in nocturnal rodents, this is during the night. So they were doing shift work, but they weren't allowed to eat during their shift work. And they were only eating during the normal time uh, the, uh, that they would uh, typically eat at. So that was really the inspiration for this study, this line of work by Carolina and, and many others in the field of the animal experimental field. So what we then therefore did is we we scheduled people to eat only during the biological day. And biological day here was defined as the time when you know melatonin levels would be low, when core body temperature would be high. So basically what we did is we we scheduled people to a 28-hour sleep-wake cycle to uh, simulate somewhat of a of a rotating shift, but very slowly. And then when they were maximally misaligned, so 12 hours uh, inverted sleep-wake cycle, we then tested their uh, glucose control and compared it with when they were normally aligned. In one group, we did it when they were eating whenever they were awake. So they had systematically scheduled breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it moved along with the sleep-wake cycle on a 28-hour schedule. Whereas in the intervention protocol, while the sleep-wake cycle was still sliding along on a 28-hour cycle, the eating and fasting cycle was kept on a 24-hour mm. schedule. And we can talk about how we managed to do that, which was not trivial, but we did. <laughs> and so um, the the end result was that we could we could minimize the uh, adverse effects on glucose tolerance. And to our surprise, actually, we did we found no effect of uh, no adverse effect of uh, misalignment in the intervention group. So not only could we minimize it, we could prevent the uh, negative effects on glucose control. So that was one half of the study. Uh, it gets a bit more complicated because we also were intrigued by a finding, again, inspired by animal experimental work, which is that you can actually uncouple the different clocks in your body. Mm -hmm. So we briefly touched on this. So we have one central clock, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the master clock in the brain. But we have <clears throat> uh, clocks throughout our body. So if you take out a heart cell or a skin cell or a fat cell and throw it in a Petri dish, it will happily take along with a rhythm of about 24 hours. And it's because the same molecular machinery that drives rhythms in the suprachiasmatic nucleus are also present in virtually all the uh, cells in our body. 
So we have clocks, we have literally trillions of clocks uh, throughout our body. And so animal experimental work had shown that if you give animals, uh, nocturnal rodents, if you give them food during the light phase when they normally wouldn't be eating, and you keep them on the schedule for a couple of days, the liver clock shifts to match the timing of their food availability. But if you then look at their central clock in their brain, it doesn't care. It just mm -hmm. takes along happily, follows the light-dark cycle as if nothing happened. So the end result, therefore, is that you have a central clock that may be, you know, in your case, in Maastricht, but your liver clock may be in Tokyo. And so yeah. uh, that, that's, that was the inspiration for our second part of our study, which is to look at if this also might occur in humans, if we could disentangle, dissociate, um, I should say uncouple circadian rhythms that we know are driven by the central clock and circadian rhythms that are maybe driven by uh, peripheral clocks. And so what we looked at was to use core body temperature minimum, or I should say core body temperature as a marker of central circadian phase. And so during a normal sleep-wake cycle, you cannot use core temperature to estimate central uh, circadian phase. But we use a protocol that's known as a constant routine protocol, and it's one of the gold standard circadian protocols in humans, whereby we remove any 24-hour rhythmicity in behaviors or environmental conditions uh, to isolate any rhythms that are driven by the uh, circadian system itself. So what it means is that we keep people awake for, let's say, 36 hours straight, keep them in bed in the same body posture, upper body 45 degree angle. Uh, we keep them in dim lights so that there is no light dark cycle and light you know, doesn't impact uh, the, the central clock in any meaningful way. Uh, we keep them inactive so they are not you know, moving around, exercising or anything like that. And we are giving them isocaloric snacks, meaning identical little snacks Inter was a, an identical interval as well. So every hour we would give him the same little snack such that any rhythm that you observe is not driven by sleep-wake, not by rest activity, postural changes, light-dark cycle, anything like that, eating, fasting. And thereby what we can do is we can extract, isolate the circadian control of any biological parameter. And so what we then looked at specifically was a control of glucose uh, and insulin and core body temperature, those three uh, factors. And what we found was that under those highly controlled studies where we can isolate circadian control, we found that the core body temperature circadian rhythm is unchanged after people have undergone circadian misalignment. Again, like the rodent model, the central clock doesn't really care. Yeah. Uh, when you're sleeping, when you're eating, it really just only cares about light-dark. But since we kept them in dim light conditions uh, in the misalignment protocol, it basically didn't move. It moved about half an hour later, which is just a natural drift uh, across many days. But what we found was that the glucose circadian rhythm was now suddenly inverted. So it followed the inversion of the uh, behavioral cycle, so the sleep-wake and eating-fasting cycle in the control protocol. And we could prevent this inversion again in the intervention protocol, 
meaning that it wasn't driven by the sleep-wake cycle, the, the inversion, but it was purely driven by the timing of the eating-fasting cycle. The, to connect those two parts together, what we found was that the, the, the degree of glucose intolerance linked up, correlated with the degree of internal misalignment. So the misalignment between the glucose rhythm and the core body temperature rhythm, suggesting that maybe uh, the internal misalignment is uh, at least related to the degree of uh, glucose intolerance. Yeah, no, great. I think that, as I said, it's a very complex study. And I think you men you managed very well to put that into uh, words that are understandable for somebody not familiar with this type of research. So the constant routine, I think, is something I also covered on one of the previous episodes, but I think you you added a few things here, so that's great. I wanted to add, add one thing. This yeah. this work was <laughs> this work was done by Sarah Shalapa. Uh, so she was the first author on this paper, and she is currently um, a Humboldt uh, experienced fellow at the University of Cologne in in Germany. I just wanted to uh, do a shout out to Sarah. Yeah, that's uh, actually I'm trying to connect with her all the time because I'm still living in Cologne, so it, it's actually nearby. Right, uh, but she, I think she has been living in Brazil for quite some. That's time. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, she said that some sometime this year she's going to make the move and will be around. So I, I will make sure to to get in touch with her. Indeed, excellent. Uh, it's a brilliant paper. All right, and I think that already points listeners towards the fact uh, that the time of your food intake is is one of the crucial things for a shift worker to keep in mind and i think there we can complement perfectly uh what you said in or what the message was with your the first study we just you just discussed so basically the contrast you did in the more recent study um i will again um point out listeners uh, point the title out for listeners so the paper was published in cell metabolism in 2022 late last year so pretty fresh uh, work out. And the title is Late Isocaloric Eating Increases Hunger, Decreases Energy Expenditure, and Modifies Metabolic Pathways in Adults with over Overweight and Obesity. And I mean, just from, from the title, I guess um, it, it, we can already appreciate that it goes a little bit opposite towards the, to the, towards the Science Advances paper. Uh, but so what was the rationale of performing this study probably in parallel or just right after the, the previous one? Yeah, maybe I want to understand what you mean going opposite to the previous study. Yeah, I mean, just pretty much just based from the title take-home message, there is on the one hand this, this aspect of daytime eating prevents uh, circadian misalignment and glucose intolerance. And on the other hand, your your more recent paper suggests, okay, late eating is is the culprit for negative aspects in terms of increasing hunger and and thereby possibly uh, supporting the negative effects of ship work i see yeah i think yeah. maybe you mean that the first paper we took kind of a positive spin and in the second paper we took a negative spin yeah <laughs> right that, that's yeah that's what a, I mean. that's yeah. a that's an interesting <laughs> point it's true so in the the first paper indeed we wanted to make the point of what can we do about the adverse effects uh, of circadian misalignment the second paper 
we were trying to understand the association that had been reported between late eating and increased risk for obesity. So yeah, the two papers are uh, related in the sense that they deal with meal timing and especially, well, I guess that's that's the main commonality. The, the difference is, well, one of the differences is that the first one was really a, a heavy circadian paper where we tried to tease apart those, those aspects was dealing with circadian misalignment and was focusing on glucose control. Whereas the second paper is uh, dealing with energy balance regulation and is uh, probably more generally applicable in the sense that it's not just uh, shift workers or other people with circadian rhythm sleep disturb disturbances, but basically is relevant to anybody who's eating, which is most people. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the... Yeah, maybe choose to indicate the background of of why we why we address this uh, this second question. Our interest really started, or my interest, I should say, really started with uh, meeting Marta Gara Ulet. Uh, she is a full professor at Murcia University in in Spain. Uh, she's a nutrigeneticist uh, in training. We met each other in 2012 in Boston, where uh, we both were interested in the question of the importance of uh, timing of food on metabolism. Based on that and on beautiful data she, she had from her laboratory, we then published a paper in 2013 in which we address this question in an observational longitudinal study uh, looking at whether people who either ate early or late, and those were uh, about 50% men, 50% women, overweight and obese in the participants, in total 420, were followed for 20 weeks of a weight loss intervention. And so the question was, does the timing of the main meal, uh, does that uh, relate to the success of the weight loss intervention. We used the median split analysis, meaning that we just looked at the people who were eating latest versus those who were eating uh, earliest, uh, their main meal, which is lunch in Spain. And lunch represents about 40% of the daily caloric intake, so really a big uh, proportion, mm -hmm. and is on average eaten at around 3 p.m., so quite different from the Netherlands or in most yeah. places in the U.S. And it's it's also uh, often uh, followed by by siesta. So the uh, you know you can notice uh, special differences in Mediterranean area uh, for eating and sleeping habits. But based on that based on that uh, question, what we found was that the late eaters lost substantially less wet body mass than the early eaters. So the early eaters lost about 25% more in the same intervention with the same intervention over the same amount of time. And so that was really the the motivation for this particular study and a whole line of other studies that we've done in the interim to try to understand why this might be. And we've looked at uh, diet induced thermogenesis as a potential mechanism. We've looked at circadian control of hunger and appetite under circadian uh, protocols. So, so the question here was, if meal timing matters for energy balance control or for body mass, might this be through changes in energy expenditure? Might it be through changes in energy 
intake uh, regulating factors, or might it be due to changes in molecular uh, pathways involved in adipocyte metabolism? And so the study is a lot simpler than, than the previous study in the sense that we this was a, a randomized controlled uh, crossover trial. So each participant was their own, their own control. We included uh, 16 overweight and obese uh, participants, so a relevant uh, population. And we they lived in the laboratory for the duration of the study uh, so that we could control their exact caloric intake, the timing, exactly what they ate, not just how much, but also what and when, uh, their physical activity, their sleep timing, uh, their room temperature, et cetera, et cetera. Under those highly controlled uh, laboratory conditions, the only thing we changed was when they ate. So we shifted the meals 250 minutes, or let's say about four hours later, in, in one condition compared to the other condition. So they had three identical uh, test meals, uh, and we just moved them later uh, on day three in the protocol. And we assessed them on that acute day and also on day six again. And on day five, we did biopsies of uh, subcutaneous adipose tissue from the lower abdomen. And so what we found we uh, with this setup, uh, we found... Well, let me say first what we measured. So we looked at, uh, from energy expenditure point of view, during the full wake episode, we had uh, hourly or two hourly indirect telemetry assessment with ventilated hood uh, of the participants during, so for each participant four times, so in both protocols and in both protocols was on day three and day six. Uh, so we could contrast the energy expenditure in the early versus the late eating protocol. Then what we measured uh, was also core body temperature uh, throughout the whole protocol with uh, rectal temperature sensors so that we could use that as a surrogate measure of uh, energy expenditure in the sense that the behaviors were identical, the environmental temperature was identical. So changes in core temperature may be reflective of changes in energy expenditure. And the benefit over the interreclometry was uh, that it covered the full 24 hours. So even though it's not a gold standard measure, it could maybe help us interpret the data. Regarding the energy intake drive, we looked at hunger and appetite scores. So we had about, I think about 15-ish visual analog scales, computerized, mm -hmm. uh, that we had them uh, complete every hour throughout the whole wake episode. So we could look at their hunger and appetite for each of the test days. We also measured 24 hours uh, of hourly <clears throat> blood samples for leptin and acylated ghrelin, so the active form of ghrelin. So leptin is a satiety hormone, ghrelin is hunger hormone, so that we had both a, a subjective and an objective measure of the drive for energy intake. And then thirdly, we looked at the transcriptomic analysis of the adipose biopsies, so the, the fat biopsies to look at pathways involved in adipogenesis and uh, lipolysis, so the fat growth regulating pathways. And what we did, what did we found? Well, we found that with late eating, the energy expenditure was decreased uh, during the wake episode. And this went hand in hand with the core body temperature that also was decreased in parallel uh, during the wake episode. We could see this, and uh, this was sustained also across 24 hours. Uh, and also during the end of the sleep episode, when they had been fasting long, the same body posture, sleeping 
So, so everything was similar. We also found that core temperature was still lower. So it suggested that this is, uh, was really a sustained decrease in energy expenditure. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have a met uh, metabolic room. So maybe sure. this is, uh, Frida, something that you can follow up on uh, in, uh, in Maastricht. Yeah, maybe um, the next PhD student can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so what did we find for the driver energy intake? Well, we found that people reported increases in, in hunger and appetite. That went hand in hand with an increase in the ghrelin to leptin ratio across the 24 hours. So also those two measures were consistent and showing uh, the same result, basically. So that, then, that that would give you basically a, a mechanism of how late eating could contribute to weight gain in the long term, right? By on the one hand, decreasing energy expenditure, but still increasing the urge to eat. Right, exactly. So yeah, both factors uh, are in the, in the same direction in that they would, if this would be sustained uh, long term, would contribute to increase likelihood of, of, of gaining body mass, right? Yeah. That's that's right. And then thirdly, we found on the biopsies that lipolysis was decreased and, or at least pathways for lipolysis were decreased and pathways for, for adipogenesis were, were increased. So again, in line with um, yeah. the observation of increased body mass. Taken together, these two studies, it, would it be right, in your opinion, to conclude for a shift worker, uh, it might be favorable to shift your eating still to the daytime period if possible. So that means somehow facilitating fasting during the night shift because you see that especially the, the late night eating yeah, is disruptive to, to metabolism, to, to physiology, to energy expenditure and so on and will probably in the long term contribute to, to negative health effects. Yeah, that would be a suggestion from this work. Of course, the, the type of work to really make this into a uh, recommendation would still need to be done, which is to to translate this into larger population of real-time, uh, real-life night workers. Uh, but at least the uh, biological uh, changes that we see, the biological mechanisms that we observe would suggest that this is a promising uh, direction that, that should be followed up on. I hope that you enjoyed this first part of my discussion with Frank Scher, and I'm sure that now you don't want to miss the second part in which we will talk about practical recommendations for what a night shift worker could do acutely preceding, during and following a shift and chronically when working years of shift schedules to minimize health risks. So if you are involved in shift work yourself or any relatives, friends or people that you care about in, in other ways are involved in shift work, I think this next and second part of this episode series with Frank Scher will give you a really good toolbox of things that a shift worker can do to lower the burden of this kind of work, as you learned in the first part. And finally, I would like to mention that, as always, please feel free to provide me with any feedback you may have to improve the podcast and suggestions on guests that fit the general theme of 24-7 Muscle. <laughs>